This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Welcome. Thank you all for being here this morning. We appreciate your time, especially since this is officially before the start of the academic year. So we are incredibly thankful to have a, a packed room here today. Um, so we welcome you here to our symposium today on inclusive excellence. And we're thrilled to have our speaker, um, Dr. William Smith, here to speak with us. Um, before that, just a couple of quick housekeeping items. If you haven't already gotten your name tag and folder, you can um, see the wonderful grad assistant from the Center for Multicultural Affairs, Ariane, over there. And um, for those of you who aren't familiar with this building, um, the restrooms are down the hall on this floor, and there are also some additional ones upstairs if you're interested. And feel free throughout our day to help yourself to our snacks. Um, and, and yeah, we will have, we'll have lunch about 11.30. So um, I'm Bridget Dwyer, I work in the Center for Multicultural mm-hmm. Affairs. And um, at this point, you'll hear more from me in a little bit later, but I will turn it over to Father Kale Ellis to give us our, the official welcome. Good morning. Good morning. And on behalf of the uh, Office of Vice President for Academic Affairs and, of course, the Center for Multicultural Affairs, I'd like to welcome you to this inclusive excellence, the academic side of diversity and inclusion symposium. I, too, appreciate the time you've carved out uh, to attend this important uh, seminar. The term uh, diversity in higher education is often used as a kind of shorthand uh, to describe a wide variety of situations. When uh, Terry Nance and uh, Bridget Dwyer came to see me to talk about this, I got my usual lecture on, on the importance, not only the importance of this, but also you know, the nuances associated with diversity. And uh, uh, as uh, Terry particularly likes to point out, diversity within our campus community uh, is uh, not only key, but uh, is essential to, uh, to what we are about as a university. And commonly, you know, of course, it includes uh, diversity, <clears throat> which encompasses race, you know, economic uh, status, and of course, social class. But it also relates to diversity in the courses that we offer, uh, diversity in the way we teach, and diversity in how students learn. So diversity, however, remains, I think, a challenge for us at Villanova. And so in a sense, we are, we are periodically reminding ourselves of the importance of it and trying to devise ways in which uh, we can emphasize its development. And so uh, part of the challenge for us at Villanova, of course, you know, goes beyond even race or even social class, but also economics. You know, we know we, can, we read about the gap now between rich and poor on our campuses, that this has widened certainly since the 2008 recession, and has affected not only uh, access to higher education, but also has choked off employment opportunities for many recent graduates. And as a result, all of this serves to compromise our (coughs) academic mission, which is to provide access to higher education. And so we promote diversity not only because it is inclusive and right, but because it is in our interests as it prepares students to live and work in a diverse world. 
So our efforts to accomplish diversity have <coughs> been met with significant successes, of course, but they also have posed challenges for us. So today's symposium will examine one of those challenges, that of recognizing and removing the more subtle but lingering barriers to diversity that remain to this day, particularly for African-American students. Our keynote speaker, Dr. William Smith from the University of Utah, will lead us in a discussion of his provocative theory entitled Racial Battle Fatigue and his impact on the intellectual life, the physical health of students and faculty of color and on the community at large. Now, Dr. Smith studies how race, gender, and other factors intersect to create specific unique conditions of disadvantage or privilege for some compared to others. And so the goal of Dr. Smith's presentation is to engage the academic leadership in a conversation about diversity at Villanova in this academic study. So the challenge of the last 20 years was increasing the amount of diversity in our classroom. The task for Villanova in the next 20 years will be for figuring out how to use this diversity to help us better accomplish all of our educational goals and objectives. And so we look forward to Dr. Smith's presentation. And now, to introduce, I'd like to, to introduce you. I'd like to give the podium over to Dr. Terry Nance and Bridget Dwyer, who will moderate today's event. So again, thank you for coming, and uh, we all look forward to a very successful day. Thank you. stand up that we know how to project and use the, uh, use the room well. One of the things I wanted to do today is uh, just to steal one moment and talk about the term inclusive excellence that really is the title of today's symposium. And uh, Father Ellis talked to us a little bit about the term diversity and probably when you wrote on your calendars what you were coming to, you might have written down diversity lecture or diversity symposium. And and there are times, especially as academics, we know diversity, inclusive excellence, it's all the same. Except that I want today to just take a few minutes prior to uh, listening to, to Dr. Smith's uh, work to really talk about the difference and why it's particularly important to us as academic leaders. When we think about, um, really, what I'm going to do is, I would call this the difference between old notions of diversity and what we would consider new uh, notions of diversity. I would even go so far as to say to bring it down to the difference between civil rights and inclusive excellence. Many of us, as I look around the room, were here during the civil rights era and its impact on education. If you think about what were we doing during that era, we were interested in making sure that we had the law in place, first of all, to support changing our institutions. And then when we then began to move beyond the law, we wanted to uh, and why did we want to do that? Obviously, we wanted to redress past social inequities. We also wanted to respond to the call 
uh, from the business and community leaders to strengthen a diverse workforce. And we had also in the civil rights era that generally this was the right, and especially here at Villanova, the moral thing to do. But what this civil rights approach doesn't do, as we are now in the 21st century, is that it does not uh, uh, address a couple of key issues. Compositional diversity of, uh, uh, of the student body does not address the compositional diversity that's also necessary <coughs> in other parts of this community. So that our old notion uh, of diversifying our campus with its focus on students didn't talk about faculty, staff, and administrators. Um, nor did this old model really talk about really what we're going to be addressing today, which is the climate for race and inclusion on college campuses. It didn't address the issues of students' multiple identities, that students come not just as racial and ethnic entities, but also um, with gender, with uh, class, sexual orientation, nor did it address the intersectionality of these, of these differences as well. When we talk about, uh, so, that that's, so that those are all the kinds of things that uh, the old model did not address, but when we move to this notion of, of inclusive excellence, um, we're really talking about approach that organizes our uh, work in a way that is deliberate, intentional, and coordinated. In particular, what we're seeking to do is employ a dual focus on diversity concentrating on both increasing compositional diversity and creating, and here's the key part, and creating learning environments in which all students prosper. Because that's another interesting difference. When we were talking about the civil rights model, all of our attention was focused on the different students that we brought in. And we were focused on how do we make the, the, the students of color comfortable? How do we make sure that they're learning? But what we were not asking ourselves is what does this diversity do to the very topics that we teach, to the way that we teach, to the way that we begin to offer our students a complete educational experience that will ultimately prepare them for the world in which they're going to be functioning. So when we talk about inclusive excellence then, we are not talking simply about raising the melanin content on a college campus. We are saying to ourselves, how is it that we improve the overall um, quality of the materials that we teach, of the people that we encounter, of the Villanova experience? So when we place diversity at the center of the institutional life, so that uh, what we're doing is that we then make it uh, a core organizing principle upon which all of our decisions are made. Right? So this calls for close attentiveness to the student experience itself as, uh, and making sure that we understand and know what that experience is. So this, the demands, this demands that the ideals of diversity and excellence be pursued as, and be interconnected as, as, and be explored as both interconnected and interdependent uh, goals. So what's the point? If you read James Anderson's uh, book, which talks about, uh, and by the way, James Anderson, who is not only a leader in this field and talks uh, so eloquently about change, is also a Villanova graduate. So we're very proud of that. But one of the things that he says is that, so what's the bottom line? Unless we have faculty 
fully engaged in the notions of, of this inclusive excellence, then we have not begun the work of diversifying our institutions. We have not begun the work of really making the <coughs> making our education uh, 20, making it making our students and the education we offer ready for the 21st century. So with that, um, I'd also like to sort of fit this symposium in with the ongoing work of the university. Some of you were with us last year when we did the uh, data, when we uh, presented data that we collected as a result of the um, uh, diversity blueprint. Many of you know that the diversity blueprint uh, that we launched now uh, more than seven years ago uh, had, has reached its threshold. We did the evaluation last year and, and compiled the results. There uh, is a very lengthy report um, that is uh, uh, available if you're, if you're so interested. Um, and so last year we presented those results. At the end of that conference, we asked those gathered, what are the next steps that you think will help us achieve our educational goals? The first thing they said was you must include the faculty in this conversation. Second, one of the notions that we introduced at the conference, um, uh, introduced at the conference, was this idea of thank you microaggressions. Remember <laughs> that, that awful moment, right? This notion of microaggression. Some of you uh, are familiar with this. I am not going to uh, step on the notion, but we explored the concept a little bit. Clearly, it is about. Uh, what goes on in the classroom, what goes on in the campus, and uh, again, we needed to explore it more. So that's why this gathering is here now. So one of the things I'd like to do is call uh, up uh, to the front of the room um, my incredible uh, assistant director and conference coordinator, Bridget Dwyer, who comes to us. Um, and by the way, wait a minute, by the way, I think the conference needs to know. Uh, those of you who were seen, might not realize how different she looks, she is now officially Dr. Bridget Dwyer. Oh, marked it in 2005, 2008, and 2011. 
So we can see some growth over that time. Um, and also, as, as researchers, many, many of you may be familiar that the category of two or more races and the category of Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islander was a new category that was introduced in the 2010 census. So that's why there's no data available for, for that particular, <coughs> particular segment. So all in all, um, we are approximately 20% students of color. So graphically represented, that looks like this. So from this depiction, it's pretty clear that we are a majority white institution. Yes, question? Yes, those are undergraduate students, yes. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I just point that, if I bring up this bar graph here to show that we are a majority white institution. So it's, it, I think it's just very clear in this particular institution. Um, and if we look at ourselves compared to um, some of our peer and aspirant institutions, so Bucknell, Wake Forest, Villanova, Lehigh, Notre Dame, Richmond, College of the Holy Cross, Georgetown, Boston College, and UPenn, we are in the bottom third, or we're eighth out of 10 of our peer and aspirant institutions as far as our undergraduate racial diversity. Um, and in some of these slides, I should also, me also mention too, you see at the bottom there's uh, domestic, multicultural, and multicultural. We consider, domestic, or we consider domestic, multicultural are students of color that are born in the US. Multicultural is a term that we've been using to describe both our domestic students of color as well as our international population. So one of the things that when we were compiling the data last year, we found, or we, we were thinking about, we were really curious uh, as to what the, we were thinking about the students we knew and what the population of our students of color looked like. And we had a presumption that several, a lot of our, our student population of color were athletes. And so we went in and kind of like, well, let's see what we can do to examine what that looks like. Um, are we right, are we wrong? So this, this right here is a depiction of the student enrollment by race and gender. So you can see again, these, these, these tall towers that I just showed. So here is the student athlete enrollment, again this is in fall 2010, by race and gender. So if we look at the student, if we take the entire student athlete population, um, going to the far, the far side, 79% of the, of the student athlete population is, is white. So that's kind of comparable with our, with our overall student population. Um, we're about 78%, 77% student, white students, Caucasian students, and we're about 79 if you're just looking at the student athlete population. We see those numbers come up a little bit if we're looking at African American students, which is this blue, blue line there. If we look at the percentage of student athletes that are, um, we see the tower switch here. If we're looking at the racial, if we're looking just at that student athlete population we see that a large population of our <coughs> African-American students on campus are athletes. So what this is showing is that about one in 12 Villanova students, or 8% are student athletes. 8% of white Villanovans are athletes, but 52% of African-American students are student athletes. Excuse me, 52% of African-American males on campus are student athletes. And essentially that equates to one in three African Americans on this campus are athletes, and one in two African American men on this campus are athletes. So that was just really compelling data when we were looking at this, the student information. It was compelling to us to note that a lot of our um, diversity is really coming through athletics. So 
you know, I think that that can, it can send a message that, you know, is that, is that how, the only way that we value diversity is if you're, if you're able to, to play a sport. And I don't think that that's true on this campus, but that's what our numbers could indicate. So looking at our overall population, um, we have grown since 2005. Uh, excuse me, this is looking at our, um, our, graduate, our graduates. So our goal when we laid out the blueprint was that 20% of our student population would be students of color. We have met that goal. Admissions has done a fantastic job at increasing our numbers over time. But what we found is that we're, while our freshman class, while our entire population is over 20% students of color, we are not graduating yet 20% students of color. So there's some attrition that's happening during that time period. And so we're, you can see, again, we're making progress, but we're at 17%. Uh, almost 18% for students for domestic and almost at 20% for uh, international. And so there was, uh, recently I, I received a message about a student that, that departed um, Villanova and decided to go to another institution. And I'm gonna read briefly what she wrote in this email um, to a professor. She said, um, this was just a couple of weeks ago, so she, she's a freshman and she, she transferred to NYU. Um, the decision to, to leave was very difficult. I started Villanova with the anticipation and enthusiasm. I really enjoyed my courses, and the semester went well academically. I completed 18 credits with a, cre with a GPA of 3.95, so that part was great. Sorry, it's got cut off here. I'm not a Mac user, so there we go. I was, looking to, I was looking forward to the opportunity to, to, to working with you. However, as the semester progressed, it became clear that Villanova was not the right fit for me. I have always attended New York City public schools with incredibly broad diversity. My peers and friends came from all over the world, representing just about every background and culture. I was aware of how much I enjoyed that diversity, but never realized how important it is to me until the last four months. Ultimately, my family and I decided that I should apply to NYU, and I was admitted at start of, to start in the spring semester. I feel really bad about disappointing you, especially since you took an extra genuine interest in my Villanova education. I hope you understand uh, why, it, why it feels like the right decision for me. So this is, again, a testimonial of their experiences that students of color are having on this campus that make them feel not, not as comfortable. Um, and so our job is, again, not to, we, we do want to still work on increasing our diversity, but we also want to work on that feeling of welcome, making sure that everyone does feel welcome on this campus. So just briefly about faculty. So this is our faculty representation on campus. So we can see 3% African American, 3% Latino or Hispanic, 7% Asian, 84% white, 1% two or more races, and 3% non-resident. And another thing to note about this category of non-resident alien is that especially for faculty and staff, you, um, some faculty may come to this country and be a non-resident alien and then um, become US citizens while they're here. So they might move out of this non-resident category into one of the other categories. So if we look at how we compare to, again, the same group of peer and aspirate institutions, we are pretty much right in the middle as far as our percentages. Of people of color, excuse me, faculty of color. <coughs> and then briefly about staff and administration. So our staff and administration, about 9% is the, exec the, the uppermost level, um, are domestic, 
multicultural. And this, this category includes anybody who has the title of assistant director or higher. Um, of our professional staff, so anybody who is maybe an academic support service, somebody who has the title of a coordinator, we've got 13% and 14%. And our tech and paraprofessional are at 5% domestic multicultural and 9% multicultural. Our clerical staff is 13, skilled craft 11, and service and maintenance are 53%. So if we look at that, at our overall numbers, really a lot of the diversity we're gaining from the staff side is really from this service maintenance. And we've heard um, students say that, you know, that a, a lot of the, the diversity they're experiencing on campus, really they're only seeing people that look like them, whether they're serving them dinner or cleaning their residence halls. So um, we have a little bit lopsided. So sorry for the small font here, but this is uh, kind of everything on, on, one, on one page. So if we fold in our faculty into that picture that I just um, noted, we have 11% um, in that top, topmost category. So that would include the academic leadership as well. So our numbers get a little bit higher, but still, um, we are lopsided. And especially at the, the, the bottom bullet point there, um, if we're looking at our African-American, the diversity of our African-American fac faculty and staff on campus, it is heavily skewed towards um, <coughs> service and maintenance. So um, those are kind of some of the, the most compelling data that we presented last year. Again, we have a stack of over 100 slides if you're interested in seeing more of the, the survey data. Um, we use the freshman and senior surveys, the climate study, a lot of, this, a lot of the different surveys that you've filled out over your, your probably last five years here at Villanova um, is compiled in that. Um, also, one of the things we're going to be doing is if you would like, um, at the end of this conference, we will uh, take your email and add you to, what is it, is this the listserv? The, yeah, mm -hmm. we can add you to, to a, a listserv or provide you some additional information if you're interested in that. So, um, now I'm gonna switch hats and I'm uh, going to go ahead and introduce our speaker. So we are fortunate to have Dr. William Smith here today from the University of Utah. And he's an esteemed professor, researcher, and administrator. He holds many titles and many roles. Dr. Smith is the Associate Dean for Diversity, Access, and Equity in the College of Education at the University of Utah. He's an Associate Professor in the Department of Education, Culture, and Society and Ethnic Studies program at, at University of Utah. He serves as a Special Assistant to the President, and he serves as a Faculty Athletic Representative at athletics representative at the University of Utah. He also sits on several, at least one, or maybe several Pac-12 committees. Uh, the role, these roles lead him to travel to various parts of the country and consult with numerous institutions of higher education. So he's had a very exciting career. Dr. Smith is a Chicago native and received his undergraduate and master's degrees from Eastern Illinois and his P University and his PhD from the Education Policy Studies Department at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Prior to completing his degree, he joined the African American Studies Program and the Sociology Department at Western Illinois University as an assistant professor. In 97, Smith was awarded a two-year postdoc research fellowship from the Center for Urban Educational Research Development at University of Illinois Chicago. His research efforts there were essential to the development of his research on affirmative action issues, race-related stress, numerous presentations, papers, and his co-edited book, Racial crisis, racial crisis in American Higher Education, Continuing Challenges to the 21st Century, <coughs> published in 2002, which has received overwhelming, which has been overwhelmingly received since its publication release. After completing his research, 
and this postdoc. Dr. Smith joined the faculty of the Ethnic Studies program in the Department of Education, Culture, and Society at the University of Utah. In 2003, he was awarded the Ford Foundation Postdoctoral Research Fellowship to further his theoretical concept of racial battle fatigue. In brief, racial battle fatigue is an interdisciplinary theoretical framework that provides a clearer method for understanding race-related experiences of people of color. Dr. Smith's fellowship year was also spent, was also spent working on a collaborative project at, the, at UCLA with Dr. Walter Allen and Dr. Daniel Solorzano. Professor, Professor Smith's additional research interests are inter-ethnic relations, racial attitudes, <coughs> racial identity and socialization, academic colonialism, affirmative action attitudes, and the impact of student diversity on university and college campuses. Dr. Smith's work has appeared on the pages of such prestigious journals as the Harvard Educational Review, the Journal of Negro Education, Educational Administration Quarterly, and the, Behavioral, the American Behavioral Scientist. Dr. Smith teaches classes such as Social Equity in Higher Education, Affirmative Action and Diversity in Higher Education, American Racism, African American Spirit Experiences, and Black Popular Culture. He also received several teaching awards, being named Outstanding Faculty Member of the Year. We are pleased to have Dr. Smith with, with us today, and I invite you to uh, help me join, welcome him here. So thank, you. thank you. Good morning to everyone. And for those who, where it isn't a good morning, um, my apologies. Let me try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right, all right. It's only about 8 o'clock in Utah, so I won't have the energy of Dr. Nance just yet. But as I go on, I'm going to warm up, and I think my energy will increase, and I'll give you, a, a hopefully, uh, a great opportunity to uh, learn and dialogue and and make Villanova a better campus. Just give me one second to find my presentation. That's, that's my lovely daughter. That's a, a daddy-daughter date we do annually and we go to the restaurant that she wants to eat at. That just happened, she saved me some money, that's Red Lobster. <laughs> <laughs> and then we go out dancing and whatever else she wants to do, so. Oops, let's see. There we go. I think this works. I'm going to try this. Well, it's, it's a great pleasure to be at Villanova. Um, ever since I landed, well, even before I landed here, I had a lot of respect for this university. But as I got to speak to some of your colleagues, I gained a greater appreciation for Villanova. Uh, it almost made me wonder why I'm here. Uh, you, you seem to be doing some very, very good things. Um, you have some very strong uh, colleagues who are really trying to force uh, or push the mission of the university forward in some great ways. Um, some of the things that I've heard about Father Ellis and, and, and Father Peter have been just wonderful uh, as far as their, their leadership. So. This is a great opportunity for me that I believe that we can, I could just give you some information and hopefully that you can take that and really do some dynamic things with it. Uh, I don't try to do these kind of um, keynotes or workshops or anything too often, but when I do, 
many of the people in the audience uh, are sequestered, and maybe some of you are sequestered, but you're friendly. You're sequestered in a friendly way. <laughs> and, and so you have to try to win over a room with some difficult subjects. But just talking to Terry and, and Bridget and, and the others, uh, um, uh, Dr. Hall at dinner um, and Janice um, at dinner last night was just a wonderful experience to just get to learn much more about Villanova and some of your goals. So I have a pretty difficult task and uh, Bridget made me kind of tired just talking about everything that I do <laughs> at the university. I'm going to have to talk to the president when I get back. We, we, it's about time for a raise. Uh, but what I'm, what I'm going to try to do is present some information for you and then we can have a question and answer period at the end. But I'm going to give you a little bit more that uh, Bridget was much like Homeland Security in, in my background, but what kind of, um, <laughs> what really led me to this? Um, as she said, I'm, I was born in Chicago, raised in Chicago. Uh, my father had, my mother's a teacher. Um, she retired from teaching about 15 years ago after more than 30 years in education in Chicago public schools. And she's pretty sane still, uh, which is a great feat for somebody who's worked in those schools for so long. And my father happened to be Dr. Martin Luther King's bodyguard, at least one of them, and uh, chief of security for uh, Jesse Jackson doing Operation Breadbasket um, following Dr. King's um, assassination. And so growing up in a period like that, just think about the 60s and the 70s, and your father's gone on the road with Dr. King the majority of the time. And it's kind of a turbulent period in our country's history. And a lot of segregation. If you're a sociologist, uh, you know that Chicago has pretty much been one of the most racially segregated societies in the US. In Utah, you have to drink a lot of water. You dry out real quick. Um, and so growing up in that kind of um, laboratory, always made me question, why do people treat others like this? Why is it so bad? Why, when I'm in the car with my grandfather and we're going down the street, our neighborhood is separated from just one street from a white community, a white neighborhood, and all of a sudden he slows down at his speed, going from 35 to 30, speed limit 35. And you, you watch him do this. And eventually, after a period of time, I asked, why, you know, why do you slow? Now, this is before police um, had radars, right, in their cars. And he would tell me, because the police are very quick to give blacks tickets, speeding tickets. And so you have to show some level of respect to the police officer so they won't stop you, they won't harass you. So that's the kind of experience, that's just one. And I'm gonna give you some personal, I, I like to add some personal anecdotes as we go along just to bring this home. Because you're gonna be the greatest people who are gonna impact the lives of our future generation. The people who touch the lives of students in the classroom are some of the most important people. Because you spend a lot of time with them. 
And it's only that small amount of time. And I don't care whether you're in engineering, whether you're you know, somewhere in the hard sciences or sociology or history, just something that you do, a word that you might say, might make a world of difference for that individual because you might have shown a caring hand, a tender moment, all right? And so there's, a, there's people like you that are in the lives of many of our students, and we have to make those moments very valuable. So growing up in that period of time, it, it really impacted me, and I started to notice more and more as I grew up um, going off to even high school during those busing periods, so bus from my neighborhood to a predominantly white school. And I'm just warming up. I'm trying to get to the, where Dr. Nance is, so <laughs> I'm almost there. But by the time this slide changes to the third slide, I think I'll have my energy level up. So going to a predominantly white high school, I tested very well, uh, was in algebra trig um, in my freshman year. And remember sitting in a classroom I sat in the front, and there was a, a student who was about in the second row. And this is right before the class started. The teacher was at the desk, sitting down, going over her notes. The student balled up a piece of paper, threw it in the garbage, toward the garbage can, and missed. And he asked the student in front of him, who was in the first row, will you pick that up for me and put it in the can? And she turned around and said to him, what do I look like, your nigga? And everybody in the room kind of looked like you, like in your face, your reaction. And then they looked at me, the only black in the room, right? So the teacher was frozen. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know how to respond. She probably wished that she wasn't there, right? So what do you do in those moments? She froze. She did nothing. But that voice from that one student infected the whole classroom. Was he a racist? I don't know. He was definitely insensitive. He's definitely ignorant. Were the rest of the students in the room racist? I don't suspect so. But they were frozen. Dr. Uh, Joe Fagan talks about those three camps. The people, that small number, and that's, not, that's what we're pretty much talking about. Those people who really do something, whether out of ignorance or intentions, that hurt and harm other people. Then there's a big group in the middle. And there's a, there's a small number, but large, of those who do absolutely nothing, right? And so that's just one experience, again, that kind of shaped me as I went into psychology, thinking about why do people treat each other the way they do? And I like the show that's on TV, I think ABC, uh, What Would You Do? If anyone has seen that, you know, how many of us have been in those situations where we could have reacted, but we didn't? And so hopefully again, by the time we finish with this presentation, you might start to see things a little bit differently because of some of the qualitative, I, I'm a, I do both quantitative and qualitative research, um, but it's early in the morning, so I took all the quantitative out to give you stories because I know it's going to be hard for some of you to stay awake. And as my energy level increases, I'm going to make sure you stay awake. All right? So we want to know what would you do in those moments? How can you be better? 
How can you get off the fence, all right, and be someone who can stand for social justice? And from what I understand about St. Augustine and um, the rule and some of the other things um, that's embedded in Villanova, social justice isn't something that's disconnected from your mission. So I think I'm starting to warm up. So the previous slide was toward a theoretical framework. Let me see if this works. For understanding race-related stress on people of color. But it could have easily been, I think this might not work. Let's see. It could have easily been understanding and recognizing the impact of racial microaggressions on students of color in historically white institutions, right? And just to kind of put this in uh, outside of race. I found this slide and basically what it says is maybe 23 cents doesn't sound like a lot to someone with a Swiss bank account, Cayman Island investments, and an IRA worth tens of millions of dollars. But Governor, Ro I couldn't say Governor Romney in Utah, but, <laughs> but Governor Romney, when we lose 23 cents every hour, every day, every paycheck, every job, over our entire lives, some of that got cut off, we lose a lot. <laughs> and, and essentially, this, while not race related, definitely impacts women when you think about what they lose out every day of their lives, it's a cumulative economic stress, right? So we can kind of think about what that means. Going to work, it might be all right. She might have been treated well by others in her group, but she still feels this economic stress because of what she's cheated on. So similarly, but in a race-related way, there's an energy loss from cumulative discrimination. If you can think of the mind, this is one psychiatrist from Harvard who says, as having 100 ergs of energy, and the average man uses 50% of his energy dealing with everyday problems of the world, and he has 50% more to do creative kinds of things that he wants to do. Now that's a white person. Now a black person also has 100 ergs. He uses 50% of the the same way a white man does, dealing with what the white man has to deal with. So he has 50% left, but he uses 25% fighting being black, with all the problems being black and what it means. Okay. So it's this cumulative effect of what race in our society means, whether it's on campus, in a community, in a work um, place, wherever you go. Um, you saw the picture of my daughter. I was taking her to school uh, one morning. Actually, no, I was taking her to campus with me. And as we were going to campus, she was sitting in the back seat. She would have been in about 
first grade at the time. So she was in one of those booster seats or car seats. And I come to a stop in the road. And I look right, look, there's a T street. And I look right, look left, and I make the turn. A police is a street over, and he stops us. I saw the police there. He stops us. And he comes up to the car, and I says, Officer, is there a problem? Uh, he said, well, as far as I can see, um, see uh, you didn't stop at the stop sign. And my daughter in the back seat said, he did stop. He did stop. <laughs> you know, like her mama. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I'm, I'm saying, okay, she's, my daughter wasn't born in Chicago. You don't know this dynamic. So I'm trying to deal with the police. I said, but I stopped. He said, well, as far as I'm concerned, you didn't. And he gave me a ticket, right? Now, that costs money. I'm going to... Uh, the school, the class, to get out of the ticket. That costs time, right? It took a, a certain amount of energy, right? So I want us to think about these kind of things as we go through, especially in the qualitative information. What, what uh, we'll get to later uh, from Dr. Pierce's Mies um, in these kind of extreme um, environments, but it's uh, um, this energy that you lose when you have to deal with race-related trauma or race-related issues, okay? Nathan McCall in his autobiography also says that race affects every facet of my life. I can't get past race because white folks won't let me get past it. They remind me of it everywhere I go. Every time I step in an elevator and a white woman bunches up in the corner like that I want to rape her, I'm forced to think about it. Every time I walk into stores, the suspicious looks in white shopkeepers' eyes make me think about it. Every time I walk past whites sitting in their cars and I hear the doors locks clicking and I think about it. I can't get away from it, man. I stay so mad all the time because I'm forced to spend so much time and energy reacting to race. I hate it. It worries me. But there's no escape. No escape. And that's from his autobiography. Now, I, I tried to be a little fancy with this presentation. I'm, I haven't, I put in a whole bunch of uh, effects, so we're going to see how this works. <laughs> Mies, mundane, extreme environmental stress. Dr. Chester Pierce, a Harvard psychiatrist, gave us that term. So if I'm successful today, you're going to learn at least four terms that you can carry from this presentation that you will have a different lens on how you examine things. And that, as I talk about lens, when I used to um, teach at Western Illinois University, I used to talk to my classroom, my, my, my classes, and tell them that, because many of those white students who showed up in my African American studies classes uh, really were there to want to make a difference. They wanted to be social justice activists. They wanted to be anti-white or anti-racist white allies. The same type of people that helped uh, blacks in uh, predominantly white schools in the 60s. It wasn't just those individual black students who were small in numbers who made a difference, who helped to make uh, African-American studies become a department or a program. It was also white allies, right, in big numbers. 
And that's what we need to make a difference. In any way, just like if we're going to beat sexism against women, we need men to stand up against sexism. When they see it, we need to stand up against it. If it's uh, homophobia, we need heterosexuals to stand up against it when they see it activated. So we need all in this struggle. Just like in um, some of the marches uh, with Dr. King, it wasn't just African Americans. We need allies, right? So MIS is one of the terms that we'll try to uh, identify. The next one is racial microaggressions. The next one, racial priming. And I'll just touch on that one. And of course, what you really brought me here for was racial battle fatigue, okay? So, defining race and racism. We all know that it's socially constructed, but it has realistic effects on people's everyday lives. It's a category or a concept created to justify racism. We have a few good definitions that people have used. Andre Lord might have had the most concise and powerful definition of racism, that it's the belief in the inherent superiority of one race over others. But there are others, Manning Marable, uh, offers us a definition of race and racism. And, but one that is very powerful is how racism is about institutional power, institutional control. And that's what Bridget was talking about when she showed us the data, how sometimes things don't change even in a very passive way. So we don't have to be racist, right? And sometimes the intentions might not be racist, but the effects are. And that's one of the most important things that we have to understand. You don't have to have intentionally racist attitudes to have effects that are racist. All right? Now I see some heads nodding. And I come from a black uh, 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 religious tradition, so that's a good thing. You know, I call and response. So I'm going to look forward to that. And I saw Dr. Nass, if everybody here at Villanova teaches as she did up here, then you're well on your way. Okay. Issues of campus racial climate for students of color. We need a more sophisticated analysis of race, gender, and the multiple dimensions of intersexuality. So, one of the people that I lean on heavily, as I mentioned earlier, is Dr. Chester Pierce. And Dr. Pierce identified Mies as one of the things that can better help us recognize how environmental, that kind of an ecological fit can become an ecological misfit for students of color. So you can recruit them into a campus environment but if the environmental conditions are not an ecological fit, if you haven't done the right things to make sure that you can welcome them into a welcoming environment, you might as well, well, I won't go there, but it's just a harsh experience, all right? So Mies is mundane, it's extreme, it's environmental, and it's indeed very stressful. 
right? And I'm realizing that I am starting to get a little older. I cannot see much of the screen up here. <laughs> and I was trying to be very cool about that. But, but as my wife says, you need to come into reality. So let me catch up here. So racial microaggressions are very subtle, innocuous, preconscious or unconscious degradations and put-downs. There are these racial slights that happen all the time. Um, a person going into a store, and some people might see some of these things as trivial if you don't experience them every day. But when it's ongoing, it adds up. So it doesn't have to be something that's like a racial microaggression where um, you're in a church and the church is a bomb and three little black girls blow up, which is a racial microaggression, or uh, some very extreme event. But it's those daily microaggressions that occur all the time that add up over a course of one's life, even a day, a week, a month, that are very extreme because it drains your coping strategies. So, so racial microaggressions are layered, offensive remarks or actions that whites rarely see as racist yet are experienced by people of color as assaults. And there are differential exposures at the societal, institutional, interpersonal, and individual levels. Racial priming is more about how students are racially socialized over the course of their lives. So think about it. As students of color are racially socialized to be, whether they're bicultural, particularly from their own like black identity and an American identity, or Latino and their biculturality, and it's a racial socialization experience, the same thing is true for whites and young white people. They're racially socialized as well. But what are the messages that they hear? Just as as hard as it is for my wife and I to have, but think about how much stress I have to deal with. I'm a black man living in Utah, <laughs> right? Some of you, and I apologize if you're from Utah or you have family in Utah, but some of you can't even imagine living in Utah. You're probably thinking, why is he at the University of Utah? There's 13 fine universities here in the Philadelphia area, right? But and, and, and particularly those of you who are Catholics, although I think some of the best Catholics are in, uh, in Utah, think about it. You have a dominant Mormon population and you're dealing with that kind of religious issue in a Mormon state. And Mormons, not, I'm not saying that Mormons are bad, but I saw some Jehovah Witnesses coming down the street in, in, of my block and I was so happy to see them, I said, keep hope alive. <laughs> I mean, this is Mormon country, yet the Jehovah's ha uh, Witnesses have not given up, right? So, so think about this racial socialization that, and I'm gonna use an African-American, an African-American child has to go through to make sure that they hold on to their cultural identity that they can feel proud of who and what they are. 
that they don't have to have some form of self-hatred that they have to deal with, all right? Now, how much effort goes into also racially socializing a young white child from passively being racist? In the black church, it comes up all the time. It's integrated into the sermon. In black schools, it comes up. In family dinners, it comes up. That whole racial socialization process is part and parcel of a, black, a strong black identity. Du Bois talked about it from the turn of the previous century, right? So how often do we sit with our white children in age-appropriate ways through their lives and talk about inequities, inequalities, right? It rarely happens. When I taught at Illinois, um, students were very shocked for me to tell them that Abraham Lincoln was a white supremacist and almost um, had a riot in the class. Then when I pulled up his speeches and his writings, they said, oh my Lord, right? Thomas Jefferson, not too far from here, right? Brilliant man, but it was two sides of Jefferson, right? He had a black woman who he bore children's, children with, didn't free him, even on his deathbed. And he had his other life. So US society is complex, complex and complicated. But yet our children don't learn that. When my own son was in sixth grade, he brought some second grade, he brought home a textbook and a, just a couple of pages on slavery, but the plantation drawings looked like something that we would want to go play golf on. Rolling hills, uh, lakes, cottages, no people. And so, so to, to think about what that image represented to our children, slavery must not have been that bad. My mother golfs on a course like that. My father golfs on land that looks like that. That's the image that goes on in our children's minds. When we don't do anything, when we stand passively, what would you do, right? So, now that was creative. <laughs> I, I think that was a random effect. That's Dr. Chester Pierce. And, and Dr. Pierce is approaching 90 now. Um, that's a picture that's, a painting that's hanging in, in Harvard uh, on him as a distinguished professor. He's a um, uh, professor emeritus now. Uh, and he says, most offensive actions are not gross and crippling. They are subtle and stunning. The enormity of the complications can be appreciated only when one considers that these subtle blows are delivered incessantly. Right? And so he is who I lean on when I go to think about how I, well, when I develop this kind of concept of, the, uh, of racial battle fatigue. So he also says, what the reader must bear in mind is that these racial assaults to black dignity and black hope, and think about that, hope. Because hope, for the, are there any uh, psychologists in the room? All right, you know what happens with hope. If you have hope, stress goes down, 
right, so hope is a, can mediate stress uh, to a great degree. And we have some uh, uh, national study of black Americans uh, work that we're dealing with, and we're looking at this kind of hope concept and, and stress. But what the reader must bear in mind is that these racial assaults to black dignity and black hope are incessant and cumulative. A single one may be gross. In fact, the major vehicle for racism in this country is offenses done to blacks by whites in this sort of gratuitous, never-ending way. These offenses are racial microaggressions. Almost all white-black racial interactions are characterized by white put-downs done in automatic, preconscious, unconscious fashion. These many di uh, disasters basically are cumulative, right? So, how do I define, I like that. So how do I define racial microaggressions? Let me um, turn to this. So those who are racially marginalized, those who are racially marginalized often experience various forms of racial microaggressions. Racial microaggressions are one form of systemic everyday racism used to keep those at the racial margins. So think about this when you think about students. If they have to deal with these racial mar uh, microaggressions on a day-to-day -day basis, they can't, even though they might perform well in your class, they're not performing at their peak, at their best level, because they have to negotiate that kind of campus climate. And oftentimes, they can be sick. I mean, think about this. And I, should have, I often use this um, analogy. You've seen me in this jacket, so now I'm going to get comfortable. <laughs> I often use this analogy to um, really help you understand stress. Now, I don't want you to close your eyes like I do in, in a lot of groups, because, again, I'm scared that some of you might not wake up. <laughs> but how many of you don't like to fly, if you will admit? All right, so there are some who don't like to fly. How, do you, how many of you who like to fly um, are comfortable with turbulence? Are comfortable with turbulence? All right, all right. Small. So let me just see for those who are, uh, to make sure everybody's participating. Those who like to fly, how many of you are uncomfortable with turbulence? All right, the majority of you. All right, so think about this. You're in an airplane, and you're flying from Salt Lake City to Philadelphia, and the flight is very, very turbulent, right? I mean, it's shaking. Now, some of you, and it's going up, it's dropped 2,000 feet, and it's, it's bouncing all around the sky. Now, it is torture, right? Because we're almost to racial battle fatigue because stress does what? You have an emo uh, a psychological reaction, a physiological reaction. You may have a behavioral one, but in that plane, we won't talk about that. <laughs> all right, so there's all of these reactions going on, right? So you're flying, your stress, your stress level is high. Your rapid heartbeat, your, everything is up. And, and you're aware of your surroundings, right? You don't want, if the stewardess were to, or the flight attendant were to come to you, you don't want anything to drink. You're not going to ask if you're in first class for that steak dinner. You lost your appetite, right? 
So you're going to have this reaction. But now the, the plane smooths out, and now you're landing in Philadelphia. You're all waiting to see the people come off the plane. Most people don't come off looking all shaked up and out of, you know, their mind. They grab their little bags and they walk off to baggage claim. That's what a lot of students uh, are dealing with. They're out in society, out in their neighborhoods, having these kind of racial microaggressions. They come to your classroom and they just sit there and they take notes and they try to do the best job they can uh, do. But they're in your classroom dealing with a lot of different issues, just like everybody. Everybody has stress in their life. But when you add that additional race-related stress, that's the thing that we're talking about that makes it very difficult for students to be at their best and be the best Villanova students that they can be and the ones who want to come back to campus and be those who contribute in ways that I'm sure uh, um, Father Peter would like to see the endowment grow and, or, or just the Alumni Association grow or, or the College of Engineering have a donation from that student. When I go back to my school reunion, I don't go back to the university reunion, I go back to the black student reunion. Like most of the other black students, we're going to see each other. And that reunion could be in Chicago and not at the campus, right? And that's the difference. Being a football player, ex-football player, and I'll talk about that in those statistics in a second, um, I go back to campus for that, unless they're losing. <laughs> frustration and injustice. So just as kind of a model, we look at the types of racial microaggressions, the context of racial microaggressions, these effects, and then how that leads to racial battle fatigue. So as a definition of racial battle fatigue, Racial battle fatigue is the result of psychological and physiological stress from specific race-related relationships between a racially marginalized individual and his or her environment. This race-related stress is praised by the individual as taxing or exceeding his or her available resources and thus endangering his or her well-being. Consequently, this is a disturbed person environment racial relationship which can be mediated in large part through coping as a method toward change. Therefore, unless we focus on change, we cannot learn how a racially marginalized, racially marginalized individuals, groups, and or communities learn how to manage race-related stressful events, conditions, and institutions within their environment. So that's kind of what we're doing, especially with this uh, national data. We have over a thousand, um, um, respondents, uh, and it's still uh, open, um, students uh, and alumni students, uh, primarily um, historically white institutions. Um, and we're trying to all, not just look at the issues and the problems, but also the coping. What did they do to succeed? What were those important resources and allies within the university that helped them to negotiate um, getting through? And then also those who were forced out because of too much of um, not just that they uh, they might have enjoyed being the student, but the the whole package of the environment that they had to deal with was 
stressful, race-related stress. So some of the things that we found both in our qualitative and quantitative uh, work for the symptoms of racial battle fatigue are tension headaches, back aches, elevated heartbeat, rapid breathing in anticipation of a racial conflict, um, upset stomach, extreme fatigue, ulcers, changes in appetite, elevated blood pressure. Some of the physiological or psychological ones are constant worrying, anger and anger suppression, John Henryism, or that kind of obsessive coping efforts. Those people who, if you remember the old American folklore of uh, John Henry, despite the odds, I'm going to still persist. And then what happened to John Henry? Anybody know that story? He was a coal miner, black coal miner, and he died, right? Trying to beat a machine because they were going to remove his job and he wanted to show that I can do it. I can do it despite the odds, right? So those people who have this kind of obsessive coping efforts, um, inability to sleep, sleep broken by haunting conflicts, loss of self-confidence, frustration, hypervigilance, uh, um, and academic disidentification was something I think this group would probably be very interested in. For those people who are visual uh, learners, that's just kind of a visual um, description of what I just talked about. Uh, oh, this it jumped by itself. I'll make sure if the volume is up. Now we just have a word from a friend. Oh man, let's go back. A word from a friend of mine. Father, excuse me for that brief levity, but uh, uh, you know when it makes Saturday Night Live, right, in the popular culture, that there's a real issue. Now, and that was really a, um, a light way of kind of talking about what we're, we're talking about. But, um, well, that was if the video didn't work. But there's these visual microaggressions as well. Um, Sometimes what I do is volunteer at agencies um, to help, um, in, from my counseling background, um, uh, troubled youths. And, and I was at this one, and I don't know if you can see this picture. Now, I had been coming up to this facility. It's a boys' facility. They house about 20 um, young men uh, under the age of 18. And I don't know how long I... Um, 
what's going on before I recognize this, but I, there's great things with these smartphones now. This is the front desk. And as you can see, it says, unattended children will be sold as slaves. Now that's what the sign said. And you know, so when I looked at that, I was a little uncomfortable. And, and again, intentions, effects. I don't believe that the intentions were racist at all. I think the intentions were to be funny. Kids probably run around here, but it reads differently for certain groups. And it might have read differently also for Jews or if it had anything about putting them in ovens or something like that, right? So it read differently. So the young um, black male that I was meeting with, I asked him, I said, did you, did you notice that sign out there in the front? And he said, yeah, when I first saw it, it gave me like butterflies in my stomach. And fortunately, here again, what would you do? The, the resident therapist, I told her about that. And she never, it's a white woman, never really paid attention to it. And she said, it's going to be down by the next time you come here. And it was down. So the action, I, I presented the problem, um, said how others might read it, and an ally fixed it, right? Because they were sensitive and, and uh, well-meaning to trying to help in this cause. Some other visual, well, this is a cartoon, and for those in the back, he's black because that's how we, he was born. He's suspicious because he's black. He's pursued because he's suspicious. He's defensive because he's pursued. He's shot because he's defensive. He's dead because he's black. <coughs> and one that appeared, talked about the um, immigrant, another immigrant success story, only three hours in America and already I'm getting treated like a king, and he meant Rodney King. This one was, um, you may have seen it, uh, a pretty famous uh, illustrator, artist, and he says, they'll have to find someone else to write that next stimulus bill, and he, and this was um, a depiction of, um, supposedly of um, President Obama. Same artist, just recently, this picture. A rally. If, if I, I'm a black Republican and in the crowd, and then you have one of these in that. It's just one. Are the rest of the people like that? Probably not. Is there a message with this person? Obviously. And, but it impacts a lot of people. So what I want to do in the time that I have remaining is give you some of the results from our qualitative um, findings. And this was on uh, um, African-American males. So one of the things that we found was, and this was on seven um, prestigious institutions, Illinois, Harvard, uh, UCLA, Berkeley, Stanford, Michigan, Michigan State, uh, a couple others. Um, we did focus group interviews, um, actually with blacks, Latinos, um, Asian Americans, and whites. And, but this is just the findings on black males. So consistently, there's this kind of obsessive stereotyping and marginality. 
They're often seen and viewed as a criminal, crim, criminal, uh, a new word, criminal, <laughs> criminal and predator. Um, and that was, um, and I have some, some um, slides that will talk more about it, but, but often seen being out of place. Or this possessor of ghetto-specific knowledge, this kind of athlete, student, and an anti-intellectual. And oftentimes, that athlete, student, and anti-intellectual go together. And then there's this hyper-surveillance and control, where there's this community policing and this kind of obsessive law enforcement. So I won't even pretend to read this screen. So the criminal predator is the first one. And this one says, one time when I was a freshman, and this is very bad, I was in the department and I was walking down the hallway and, and one of the teacher's doors was open. This is kind of wild. And I was coming toward her, aloud, she's like, oh, I should have locked the door. My purse is in there. And I was like, wow, like maybe you should have kept that to yourself or something. <laughs> I didn't say it aloud, but I was thinking to myself, like, oh, I reminded you that you should like lock the door. Another one is, this is constant, and these things went across the country, across institution, and those are the ones I'm sharing with you. And so these are just representative ones. I was on an elevator in some university building alone when a white woman got on. She looked at me and made a face like something smelled. Then she turned to face the door, real stiff, staring straight ahead. I was behind her and to her right. After a few seconds, I saw her move her head trying to peek back at me over her right shoulder. I guess she got nervous, not knowing what I was doing behind her. When she couldn't see me clearly from the slight turn, she squeezed her purse tight and then quickly switched it to her left hand. Remember the autobiography that I read at the very opening? Some of these things come through. One summer, the bros, the fraternity brothers, had a party at a fraternity brother's house or apartment. One hour after the party ended, someone got shot in the foot a street over. The main, sh oh, champagne, uh, my alma mater, newspaper reported the shooting occurred in the party held by our fraternity. They also refused to retract it after being confronted, and, and they found out it wasn't that fraternity. Possessive ghetto-specific knowledge. Well, I had experience in my music class. It was about Eastern culturalism. It was an American studies class, and we studied all types of music theories from around the world. And we got to rap music, and I was the only African American in the class. So when we got to rap music, everyone in the class is focused on me, and everybody laughs. It was like, okay, so tell me about rap music because you're the black male in the class. Like, I'm just an authority on everything that happens in the rap industry. And I said, well, you know, I have no idea about rap music. And everybody was just baffled, even though I do know about rap music. But it was just one of those things, and the teacher was just like, okay, Malcolm, now tell us about rap music. So on the one hand, he does know about rap music and appreciates it, but he doesn't want to fall into this stereotype about what it means to be a black male and so-called rapper. 
And then we also know that the number one consumer of rap music are white students, well, young white people, right? So white students can tell you probably just as much about rap music, and it's the most amazing thing that you can ever see is the sagging white pan, uh, pants having white guys in Utah <laughs> blaring, you know, uh, blaring this rap music out of their windows. So you wouldn't, that stereotype really doesn't work anymore. Yes, I need to catch you up. The athlete student. I think my experience came actually at the beginning of the year and continues to come around. It has to do with assumptions. As far as being in classes and people assuming that I'm an athlete, I get it all the time. Anytime I indicate to someone, whether it's on campus or off campus, that I'm a student here, the next question is, so what sports do you play? It angers me, you know what I'm saying? Because what they're doing is they're failing to recognize that black people can be here for academics as well as a white person or an Asian person. And um, you know what I'm saying? No, I'm actually here on my academic merit because I got in on academic merit. My scholarship came from academic merit. It had nothing to do with athletics. And although 52% of black males are, at, at least at Villanova, are student athletes, um, there's also that stereotype that came with it. And I was, well, actually, I was a dual sport. I played football uh, and baseball, um, but was always treated like, especially on the football side, as though you weren't that smart, right? A dumb jock kind of thing. And it didn't help, you know, I played professional baseball, and then um, actually um, I was in the minors for the Pirates. So, um, you know, played in, in their farm system, but I, that motivated me that much more to try to get a PhD afterwards. But, but many of these black students are only seen as athletes, there to entertain. <laughs> Anti-intellectual. In the College of National Resources, there's obviously an even lower number of minorities in that college who are interested in that field. So when dealing with the staff over there, it often becomes challenging sometimes because I don't know what, their motiv what the motivations are. But it seems that I have the problem over there sometimes dealing with the staff whether I want to change a class, drop a class, or add a class. Sometimes it just seems like when I talk to the staff over there, they seem to be a little short with me as far as answering my questions. Also, when I'm the, in the building that houses national, natural resources, you kind of get those looks and stares from students and staff like, why are you in this building? Basically because it's for students who are white and not knowing that I'm a student who is actually in the College of Natural Resources, they assume I'm lost or they assume that I'm su not supposed to be in there. And that's been a very constant kind of um, experience for these students. Criminalization, this is the only, I pulled this one. It wasn't part of our undergraduate sample, but it got in when we did the um, University of Michigan Law School. And it was just so interesting um, that I wanted to share that with you. 
and he says, when I came from New York, I was driving by car, and an officer stops me, and he comes over and asks me, do you have any um, guns or drugs in the car? And so I go, no, I don't. And then I ask him, why are you stopping me? And then he tells me, he says that somebody's been ripped off and that my car matches the description. I haven't seen too many yellow Hondas with New York plates around Ann Arbor, so I'm pretty doubtful that that was the case. And obviously the police would know who he was with a yellow Honda. Don't even get me started. I still know the names of the University of Illinois police by heart. I got stopped more times than I can even tell you, at least 15 to 20 times over a three-year period. And that's a very conservative estimate. On freshman week last year, I was walking around the campus just to look at it because I hadn't been up here since sixth grade. I was just looking at what the buildings looked like and I was stopped by one of the HUPD officers. And he asked me who I was and I told him that I was, I'm trying to, and I told him that I was a freshman looking around. He asked me to show ID, which I did. And then he said, okay, be more careful next time and drove off. Just a couple more. This is criminalization of African-American males, and this is a, a rather extended one because of how much detail went into this. I had a situation, we were at a parking lot, and this was one of my line brothers, which is a fraternity um, pledge class. We're in Rockdale. Because of a party, we're having a step practice, and for those of you, um, it's like an African-American uh, fraternity uh, dance or, or practice in the parking lot. So we had the radio on, and we were learning how to step. From the entrance of the parking lot, it had to be eight cars. They, police officers, just came, they all came, woo, 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 woo. And we were standing there like, are you serious? And we're all stuck in there. The police officer said, we've had complaints that there was a fight going on over here. We're like, a fight? The officer implied we fit the description. So these letters that we have on, he's talking about their Greek letters, um, implies to the officers we were the guys in the fight. Well, we didn't get the details, but we heard it was five black men. Okay, well, it wasn't us. Well, you guys are going to have to leave. Well, we're, wait, we're waiting for one of our friends to come down so we can leave. Well, you guys are going to have to leave now. And we're, and we're like, are you serious? We're just sitting here. You know we're at step practice. So Annette, and the funny thing about that, the same thing happened to, I'm in a black fraternity, and the same thing happened to me over um, 30 years ago on a campus. Police, we are in the tradition of black fraternities, uh, our players class were, were going over that next day and they had to do a step performance and the police rolled up on us. I'm sitting there watching them and they actually called me by name. They said, William Smith, you're in violation of the student conduct code, blah, 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 blah. Like, are you kidding me? So even this much, you know, this 30 years later, same kind of experience. So racism has this kind of cycle, uh, this physical toll. Statistically, black males are at an increased risk for just about every health problem. And this doesn't, um, 
this doesn't do anything but add to those problems. Um, when you control for <coughs> income and education, we still find that black men are dying on average at about 65 years of age, on average. We even know from data, um, actually by some of your, your colleagues at Penn, Penn State, some colleagues at Michigan, that particularly for black men, even um, living in white community suburbs, um, your health risk goes up. It's, as op it's the opposite for black women. So with increased education income, there's a greater health risk for black men than it is for black women, although black women are still suffering from the same kind of conditions uh, dealing with racial microaggressions. So how do we, in our lab, what we're trying to do in examining racial microaggressions is to document the everyday forms of uh, microaggressions that students and faculty of color experience. We're trying to find creative ways that students and faculty of color respond to racial microaggressions. And we're looking for those things that they do to make them resilient, resistant to these kind of racial microaggressions. So for universities like Villanova, one of the things, and for departments in, in general, one of the things that we suggest for creating tenants for social justice activism and education is to recognize that racism is endemic to American life, express skepticism toward a dominant claim of neutrality, objectivity, colorblindness, and meritocracy, challenge a historicism and insist on a more contextual historical analysis of institutional policies and practices, insist on the recognition of the exper experiential knowledge of people of color, right? And be willing to uh, affirm their experience, just like some of the uh, research on military soldiers who deal with combat fatigue. Um, regular counselors, therapists who, who haven't been in the military, who weren't vets, um, tend to have less success with veterans than veterans who are therapists because they know those experiences, they be, they're able to affirm them and not second guess them. And oftentimes what we find is that the people who want to be the best allies are always second guess, or not all of them, but many of them are second guessing um, these friends, these friends of color, right? So we have to be able to affirm their reality. And we also got to remember that what's so great about this group is that it's interdisciplinary and it crosses epistemological and methodological boundaries. And we need to work towards the end of eliminating gendered racial ethnic oppression on campus and in the student body. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> I know that was a lot to consume, a lot of uh, uh, information in that, and it's like a semester-long um, body of work. So I'm, I'm willing to have a discussion uh, and answer any questions, and maybe I'll have an answer for them.
Any questions? All right. Is it, yes. Yes, ma'am. Could you speak more? You ended with a, a, um, a statement. You said that it's the allies who are frequently second guessing mm -hmm. their uh, colleagues of color. Right. Given I think you've got a room full of allies here, could you personally address us with the ways in which, even though we think we're allies, that we might be contributing to these micro aggressions? Right. I mean, it's, it's real. I mean, sometimes we even, we, we do it with our, our, our children. You know, we'll, they'll come home with a problem. And say, are you sure? You know, but that's somebody we really know and we've watched and we've seen the experience. But when it's a peer and we don't give them the respect to really analyze their own situation and recognize that their experience is real, that's what's off-putting. So when those, when someone feels comfortable and uh, to share something with you, and say that, hey, you know, this situation didn't, it just didn't feel right over here. This is how I'm being treated. Or when I go to a certain office, it, it could be a student as well. I go to a certain office. It seems like everybody else is treated very warmly, and when they see me, all of a sudden things go cold, and. You might know the people over there and you never had that kind of experience, but it might be because that's whoever they're encountering, that's their kind of perception of that individual. And that's what they're sharing with you. And if you, if you just say, well, that's not true, that's not how they are, all of a sudden, now you sh they shut you out, they shut down, now they don't want to share. And they're, if they're coming to you, they're really trying to look for help or a solution to an issue. And sometimes just like um, um, the picture on the wall, they could have got really defensive with me. So we're not taking that down. That's ridiculous. He's being too hypersensitive and um, we only see predominantly white people anyway in here. And they don't see it to be offended by that. Just like me, it took me maybe four or five times coming to that facility, didn't even pay attention to it. But once I did, and, and one of the examples I, I was going to share with you um, in my African-American studies classes with my white students uh, at Western Illinois, um, at some point when students started to recognize that my classes weren't about kill whitey or, 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 or anti-white, it started filling up with white students. It used to be like 98% black. and all of a sudden, my last semester there, I walked in class, it was like all white. Like, oh Lord, I had a script. I was just gonna put on you know, cruise control and, and roll with it, and I was gonna take that postdoc at Illinois Chicago. So now I had to think about different examples of how I um, can bring them on, because I like using examples to make it resonate. Because I could have left you with data and you would have forgotten that. The stories seem to stick with you. So this is what I, I, I told my, my students. Uh, at the time, this is before my LASIK, um, I used to wear glasses. And I would come home, or in the morning I would shave, um, and you know, wash up, shave, clean out the sink, leave. And come home, my wife, like, why didn't you clean out the sink? 
left all that hair. And I said, baby, I did clean out the sink. Next day, I wash up, shave, clean out the sink real good, leave, come home. You're still leaving hair in the sink. Yes, dear. <laughs> Same thing goes on and on. This last time, after I shaved, cleaned out the sink, I put my glasses on. <laughs> I realized that little particles of hair were still in the sink. Now, I wasn't lying originally when I said I cleaned out the sink. I couldn't see what she could see, right? She saw some through her own vision from her own experience that without my glasses, I couldn't see. I asked my students to start putting on your racially conscious glasses so you can start seeing the experience of other people once they tell you about what they've experienced. Once they started, this is way before racial battle fatigue and all this, but once they got through my classes and started seeing what other people saw, they would come back to me and say, Dr. Smith, you were so right that I, I learned this, now I can appreciate these experiences from other people. They never experienced it in their life before. So they became a, a better ally in this fight, right? So it's just being willing to listen, not be defensive, I cleaned the sink. Right? <laughs> Woman? You know, it wasn't that I couldn't get away with that. My wife's in New York City. Uh, so I put on my glasses and I saw things from her perspective. Right? And she was correct. There was hair in the sink. There's racism on campus. Some of us don't see it. Some of us will start to recognize it even more now because now you, you have a terminology to go with an experience racial microaggression, racial priming, uh, meets, uh, racial battle fatigue, and you'll start to recognize when your, your, your students of color or your or peers of color come to you and they start saying, you know, I'm always having a headache when I'm over at such and such. And, and that might be it. It might be some other stress related. I'm not saying that everything uh, is race related stress, but there's a significant part of the lived experiences of, of people of color and also whites that's race related. I had a good friend whose um, wife was black and his faculty meetings were hell because they would talk about policy. They didn't know at the time. Uh, he's a new faculty member. Um, and they never met his wife and they would talk about policies and different things that they really didn't appreciate diversity. And he was right there, and they thought he was one of them, and he, he wasn't. So I saw this hand first, then I'll come to you. Oh, I was just going to ask if you have any projects or future projects that you're planning to take even additional layers of intersectional identity and take a look at how those are affected by microaggressions or if there are different sorts of experiences, even in terms of gender or ability or sexual orientation or something of that nature. Yeah, we, we have actually that going on right now. And it's um, online, and we, we've um, partnered, and we're, we partnered and are partnering with um, institutions across the country. Um, the online survey is uh, www.racialbattlefatigue.com. But those universities that have asked us to um, work with them, like the Campus Climate Project, we're also um, doing uh, uh, paper and pencil surveys or online. And then what we do is we'll give them a report on what we find about them compared to other 
um, institutions across the country. So, so we're and we're definitely looking at all kinds of form of intersexuality. Yeah. Yes, sir. Gosh, which hat do you want me to wear? <laughs> if I wear my, my athletics hat, that could be one of the worst situations for diversity. Um, I was also chair of the um, NCAA's Minority Opportunity Interest Committee. No, I'm sorry, vice chair. Uh, I quit before they <laughs> wanted to make me chair. But um, boards can be very hard on getting a head coach who's a coach of color. Um, and so they can inhibit progress at the institutional level because they're putting pressure on the president not to do certain things. Um, also, boosters are big in that. Uh, we, we see it in, in Utah. Uh, I don't know when we'll have a, a, a person of color as a head coach. You know, and that's one of the things I've been fighting with. And so that fight is kind of um, falling on deaf ears. So I'm, I'll be stepping down at the end of this year for not just that reason, but I need a sabbatical. I haven't had a sabbatical in 14 years, but um, definitely we see boards can make a difference. So those boards that um, are open to diversity can re really do some wonderful things. So they, they're very powerful. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I was just thinking, um, and I think this is okay for me to say, one of the things that I would also say is is if we connect between uh, a point that you just made, um, boards may not be acting um, with any sort of conscious racial malice or even uh, or, or prejudice, but because they don't have a different lens, depending upon the constitution of the board, and many times boards um, don't have quite the same level of diversity or diversity awareness as even the faculty and certainly you know the same number of students. So it's not that the actions are particularly uh, racial at a moment, but because there is no other perspective, the racial implications may not be it may not be recognized. And so that that in putting together what you just said, it becomes then important whether we're talking about the board of trustees, whether we're talking about a group of faculty, whether we're talking about a, um, a you know a group of directors that you always have to say, as my good friend Carol will say, who's not at the table? Who's, whose perspective is not informing this seemingly obvious decision? Yeah. And I, I would echo that. I asked my students at Utah, especially my undergrads, I say, um, what percentage of um, like diehard racists do you think are on campus? And they would say, oh, 60%. 50%, 40 I'm like, come on now, you, you're being really too critical. I mean, how many? And they would really say that. I say, all right, my best guess, the diehard, just avid racist, maybe less than 10%, right? 5%. Then, again, like I said, there's a lot in the middle, you know, and then there's this unconscious kind of um, passive racism or the, the effects are. And so the... But the, still, let's say it's um, Utah, it's 50,000 uh, students. If there's 5% who are diehard racists, 
and there's only 3% that are students of color, they can come into contact with that very small number of diehard races uh, in various ways. Some of the things I didn't put up here was things that were uh, carved into doors and um, at the University of Illinois at Chicago, our library was carved in there, niggas go back to Africa. You know, so things like that. So, and I happened to sit down at that, that, um, that Carol. It's so hard. You know, it's just psychological, physical, everything. Oh my gosh. Now how long has this been here? Right? But uh, in the College of Education, in my, my role as associate dean, and I hope I don't give this away for your latter part session, but special ed is one of the hardest uh, areas to diversify. Uh, and, but I challenged my um, uh, department chair that you have to do something. You have an all-white department, it's been all-white, uh, what aren't you doing? Who do you know when you go to these conferences? Who do you meet with? And he, I know, and the previous chairs haven't been racist, but they go to who they know. And they know great people, but they all are white. They only socialize with other whites. When they go to um, their meetings, the professional meetings, it's only white colleagues that they're looking forward to. Those who are in the College of Education, when you go to American Education Research Association and you see colleagues that you've missed, you hug them and you run up to them, but it's still that same small group. So what I did was say, look, we can have targeted hiring, right? We can get some of the best and brightest minds out there and, and we'll support you. And what I did was I ranked the special ed departments um, by their own rankings. And I went on and I looked at those departments. I said, okay, who's in them and what kind of research are they doing and how can they extend the mission of the college? And then we went and I, I went and talked to those individuals. I said, what SIGs are you a part of? What professional organizations are you a part of? Um, how can we get our job called out to a more diverse pool. So when you do those extra steps, those extra efforts that it might take to bring diversity, now you start to sell your university. And again, even for whites, it's like, it's a hard sell sometimes to go to Utah. But we impress people so much about the College of Education at the University of Utah that those people who are just asking for connections, now we're starting to think uh, about Utah in a different light and thinking about the possibilities. I said, look, I got some money now. We can bring you here. So what we did, instead of just offering a job, I said, look, we can offer you an opportunity to come just give a talk. And then just so you can fill out Utah, you can see and, and help us in the college and our students learn about some of your specializations. And then we can talk about maybe a targeted hire afterwards. And you do that to three or four tenured, esteemed professors, and all of a sudden, that message starts to get out about Villanova being proactive and a great place to be. Yes, ma'am. You started out by saying you were motivated by trying to figure out why people treat each other like this. I was wondering if you would come with me. No. no. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard. I mean, we, this ex experiment of uh, racism has been a, um, it's multi-generational. It's something hard to just totally eliminate. I think we're, we're making steps, 
you know, so there, there have been gains, right? So there have been gains since the 60s, but even with the 60s, um, like what Derrick Bell said, um, some of the things that we thought were gains with the civil rights movement were losses, you know, so were setbacks, was even more um, desegregation, I'm sorry, more segregation, um, much more racially segregated in some areas than we ever have been. So um, I think that the, the lack of exposure, and we know with the, the benefits of diversity, the benefits of diversity accrue at a higher level for whites than um, people of color, actually. So if, and I tell my, my students, I say, and grad students, I say, if you want your sons and daughters to achieve well and go on to do great things, I would make sure that they have a diverse environment. I mean, you have to expose them to that um, because they don't have it at Utah. Right, so you got to find ways because we know that critical thinking skills go up. We know that uh, white students who attend more diverse um, universities have higher incomes on average than those who don't. We know that they attend graduate schools at greater levels than those who don't. Uh, we know that there's all kind of just even personal benefits to diversity. Um, like I said, critical thinking skills, Fortune 500. Companies know this, and that's who they're looking for. So while we still need to work on making sure the benefits of diversity uh, meet the students of color, white students are already benefiting from it. Yes? Believe it or not, University of Utah. That's one of the reasons why I'm there and haven't left after you know, all these years. Um, one of the ways that, that they did it, and as Bridget asked last night, how did you get so many incredibly sharp people at the University of Utah, in the College of Education in particular? Uh, if you look at um, our data, you will see that the College of Education is the most diverse uh, college on our campus, um, gender-wise, racial, ethnic, um, identity uh, among the faculty and the students. One of the ways that we did that was um, we hired people within ethnic studies and the College of Education. So automatically that showed that there is something that we respect about ethnic studies, and we want that in the College of Education. So when I t left, um, when I was at Western Illinois, I was in the Department of Sociology and African American Studies, left for a postdoc. When they tried to get me out to Utah, it was only because of that connection. But the African, well, ethnic studies, I'm in the African American Studies Division and the College of Education. And so they did that with some other colleagues with Latino studies, um, Asian American studies, Native American studies, and that's what you see represented in the College of Education. That's just one example. Since I became the dean, I've had uh, dean, associate dean. <laughs> I'm stepping down from that too. Um, since I became the associate dean, 
I've had targeted hires. I've worked with the department. And then think about it. We have um, um, the president supported my position so much that he gave part of the funding for my position uh, as associate dean to the College of Education. And I happen to be the only one of the associate deans who also looks at, I'm over uh, student and faculty affairs, but also diversity and equity. There's no other associate dean on, the con uh, on a campus with that portfolio. And if we're going to connect from central administration with the chief diversity officers down to the colleges, the best way to do it is through your associate dean. I mean, have your dean on board. From what I hear about uh, uh, Father Peter, Father Peter is um, uh, a great man of vision and trying to do some wonderful things, but if it doesn't come down to the college and to the department chairs, it's not going to happen. So that's one way that we've done it, and even in special ed now, going from a history of all whites, um, we are about to hire uh, one Asian American and another faculty of color, uh, I think, next semester. So your administration made that commitment to put money behind specific, like hiring people of color? Well, we, we definitely made that, well, it really wasn't additional money. So it was that there was a line open and they made a joint appointment. So ethnic studies and that department in the College of Education came together and say, look, we need a faculty member. Let's pull this together. And the chief diversity officer at the time um, massaged that deal. And if it took um, bringing someone out and other things you got to do with faculty, especially for Utah. Now, you, you live in a great area here, so the sale might not be as hard to make, but you have to make additional steps. Uh, you have to bring them out a little longer to view the Utah and say, okay, there's no black people here, so what am I supposed <laughs> to, you know, or there's no, there's not that many Latinos, or although it's growing just like everywhere else, but still the black population is, is small. So you need to sell that to them. And what I do, and I don't just do it in the College of Education, uh, some of the other colleges get off cheap by asking me, like the College of Business, College of Engineering, <laughs> the College of Law. I've set up um, dinner meetings with the candidate and community leaders and faculty members across campus. And we got a real sharp woman in the College of Business just recently who was very skeptical. She wasn't coming, and the dean really wanted her. And when I set up the meeting, we had a nice restaurant. Community members talked about their experiences living in Utah. Some of them had been students in the 60s or 70s and stayed there. They came from California or some other place. And once she heard the testimonies of the other um, people of color, particularly African American in that group, she was sold. She called the dean that night and said, I'm coming. Yes, it's about to. Just wanted to, um, this, is, this is a great conversation, and this is really a lot of what we're, we want to get into this afternoon, is 
um, Dr. Smith has done a great job of giving us the overall framework of, of racial battle fatigue, of racial microaggressions, and what we're looking to do after lunch is to really bring it home to Villanova, to, to really brainstorm as a group as at your tables about what are some of the ideas, what are some of the opportunities we have here at Villanova to increase the welcome, increase the diversity on campus. And we have him here throughout the afternoon as a resource <coughs> to then share those ideas and, and get his expertise on how we might um, use the ideas and resources that we do have to, um, to leverage the diversity, to diversify and to, to make ourselves a more welcoming community. So um, I realize we are a little past our, our scheduled lunch time, so I do want to have you join me um, in thanking him once again for his This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.